This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm honored to have Jeremy Kagan today. He is an award-winning director, writer, producer of feature films and television, as well as a full-tenured professor at the University of Southern California. Besides all his great accomplishments, he's also had a near-death experience. And today we're going to find out about what happened and what he learned from his experience. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate you giving me some of your time. I really appreciate it, and I'm delighted to be and delighted to be here. All right. My audience loves hearing about near-death experiences, so can we please just start at the beginning, and can you explain to us what happened? Sure, I can. Um, I do want to point out for those of you in the audience who are interested in knowing more details um, that you can see over there or over there is the uh, um, e-book um, called My Death, A Personal Guidebook, um, which you can get and purposely made very inexpensive because I wanted to share this. Um, I'm also an illustrator, a caricaturist. You're seeing a character of me over here, um, right near the end of actually the like the very end of the experience, which I'll share. But if you um, uh, you know search out this book, you'll be able to um, um, know more and see the hundreds of illustrations that are part of it, so you can examine this more. Um, but I'll start by saying that I, if you would ask me. <laughs> what NDE was um, before my experience, I would have had no idea what to tell you. None whatsoever. I wouldn't have known what it meant. So I knew absolutely nothing about this. I think I may have read one book about people who have out-of-body experiences. So meaning where they uh, sort of like the, somehow their perception is they're in this room, but they're perceiving something that's happening somewhere else. So I kind of knew a little bit about that because I, I, I'd been exposed to a, a book on it and I, that I'd skimmed, I actually think, in an airport once. But that was it. So the concept of a near-death experience or NDE was something I knew nothing about, which may mean that the gift of it, and it is a gift um, for any of you, and I'm told that Almost 20 million Americans have had some kind of form of this experience, which is amazing, that it really is a gift because it allows you to realize that you are not limited by your body, by your particular emotional experiences, by your psychological makeup, by your thoughts. That's not in the end or even in the beginning who you really are. You are actually consciousness itself. And I'll explain to you what I mean by that in terms of what I learned and how this uh, experience, if you will, exposed me to that. And again, if you'd asked me about that and, and those phrases and those words that I just used now, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. I was doing work at the time with a, a, a Native American um, uh, sort of experiences um, and specifically what's called sweat lodges. Sweat lodges are um, very uncomfortable and very hot, um, and they're part of tr indigenous traditions that uh, all around the world, and you know, for thousands and thousands of years, um, it's kind of a gathering into a very dark space 
um, and where you um, are. In fact, you may go through rituals. And in this case, it's a Lakota, um, misidentified as the Sioux by um, our histories. But the Lakota people have a very specific kind of ritual. And they were allowing, honestly, uh, a number of non-Indigenous, non-Lakota people to experience these kind of sweat lodges. Um, these are not ones that are, uh, are that you're taking a psychotropic, uh, you know, uh, medicine beforehand. These are, you know, you get naked, you climb into this tent um, in the center of the tent. It's very, very dark. It's black, dark. Our volcanic rocks that are very, very hot. And you go through this, in the Lakota case, in this particular case, uh, four sort of stages. Um, what do you want for yourself? What do you want for others? What do you want to give away? Uh, and the kind of silent stage where you would just experience whatever happens. And they, they last for maybe an hour and they're really, really hot and I don't like them. But I've had a number of sort of really intense experiences that I thought were valued to me. And this was a day before my birthday in, uh, in December. So, uh, and there was a sweat lodge um, um, up in the Malibu Mountains, and uh, um, I decided that that was what I was going to do. That was how I was going to bring in my new year, if you will. So I went to it. It was very uncomfortable, as it always is, and I didn't think it was particularly um, profound. I wasn't having sort of deep insights. It was it was fine. Um, but as I was coming out of the lodge, and this was a cold day, or night, of course, I should say, um, I was coming out of the lodge, um, the, and obviously the sweat lodge is incredibly hot. Um, um, I suddenly, as I stood up, I began to lose my sense of balance, and I couldn't stand, and I fell to the ground. And... This was the beginning of the process of my, if you will, near-death, through-death experience. Because what happened was when I fell to the ground, I just thought, oh, I'm fainting. You know, I'll, I'll be okay because I was conscious of it. And I thought, I'll just take a couple breaths. It must be the you know cold and the heat and whatever. And so I'll just you know have to be adjust. And as I tried to move, I realized I could not move. And um, I had no control over my limbs. Um, so I was beginning to sort of like get a little bit anxious, but I thought, oh, well, it'll come back. It'll come back. I'll it just, you know, I just need to get through this and then a little time and then I'll be, I'll be fine. This is just some strange, you know, experience, some physical experience. Mm-hmm. But then I suddenly began to realize other things were happening. I couldn't really hear anymore. Sound became kind of like clickety and and I, there were some voices because some other people had come out and I think what they'd seen is a fellow person in the sweat lodge faint and I think this, the, the the leader of the of the sweat said don't worry let him alone he'll be okay um, and um, but I couldn't sort of hear it. And, and then I realized I couldn't see my eyesight began to crumble and everything became incredibly striated to the point I couldn't see at all and then my entire throat um, began to feel like it was turning into gravel so that my breath was becoming like sand. Um, and I now got really, really worried. I thought there's something seriously wrong going here. They're going to have to call paramedics. I'm going to have to be taken to uh, you know, a hospital um, because there's something really wrong with me. Right. My mind now is you know, spinning. 
I have no control over my body. I have no control over my, I have no ability to see or hear. And my breath is suddenly becoming, as I said, granular, almost, you know, um, sort of like, like, like rock. And I think, um, well, tomorrow, and I'm a film director. I was directing a show at uh, 20th Century Fox. Um, I'm not going to show up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to be on the set because, you know, and that may actually really damage my career because if I won't show up, well, you know, what's going to be said? Oh, he went to some, you know, Indian sweat lodge and uh, got, you know, ill. Well, th- that could be the end of my career. And so I thought, well, I'm going to have to sort of let go of my career. Okay, well... That occurred. And then I suddenly thought, I can't communicate. They're going to take me to some place. I'm going to be put in some room. If my family members come in, I'm not going to be able to communicate to them because I can't. They won't be able to communicate. I have to sort of give up my family. And then my mind suddenly said, you don't realize what's happening, but you're dying. Hmm. And I was... you know, totally convinced, convinced, wrong word. I was experiencing, that's what's happening to me. I thought, I've got to stop this. So in my mind, I thought, if I can hold on to my being, I don't know what that means, but I've made a comparison to it since the experience of like, hold on to your breath, you know, when you hold your breath and you hold it as long as you can, that I'll be able to somehow hold on to my being i won't die so i i i did this sort of internal effort to hold on and finally i couldn't hold on anymore just like holding your breath you finally have to let it out Mm. i couldn't hold on anymore Mm. and i had to let go and i let go and what happened in other words i died i let go and what happened was to my great surprise it was one of the most peaceful, calm, easy, almost serene process in this letting go. And it felt I was letting go in, and I'll use this word, in every direction. Like I was letting, if everything's composed into this body at this moment, everything just went everywhere, went everywhere. That was what the letting go was. And it was peaceful and beautiful and then i realized i still could think so my mind went well that this is a phenomenal i'm quote feeling wonderful but what's going to happen next so i was still in a sense of time and then i thought well, what if there is a heaven and hell? Now, when I was a kid, I was raised by parents who did not believe in that. But, you know, I got educated. So I had, you know, you read, you know, you, you read and you see paintings of the uh, famous paintings of heaven and paintings of hell and the Dory's illustration and Dante. And, and so, you, you know, it's in your mind. It's possible. And I thought, well, you know, I've been an okay person, but not the best of people. What if I go to hell, what if there really is one? And immediately, that's where I went. I went to my version of hell. Hmm. 
And I'm not going to describe my version of hell. I'm just telling you that I went to my version of it. And if you read the book, you'll, or wherever that book is, there it is, you'll, you'll find out about what my version of hell was. But what was so fascinating was, even though I was in this, if you will, visual kind of disgusting horror, I realized it wasn't affecting me. Hmm. I wasn't feeling anything because my body was already dead. I was just like watching a movie. So I thought, well, and the minute my mind got that hell wasn't real, but just an illusion, like watching a movie, it totally disappeared. And then I went on, which I later learned, millions of people have done this who've had these near-death experiences, a more classic journey. I did feel like I was moving through a kind of cloud-spaced area that was um, like a gigantic tunnel, but it was surrounded by, and as I said, clouds, grayness, and I could see sort of beings that looked like sort of ghostly monoliths, and I couldn't tell who they were, and I was moving sort of past. They weren't communicating. I wasn't hearing anything, but I was sort of visually seeing this, so I still had a visual you know, experience here, and they, I didn't know, who are these people? Or who are these thing people? Are they relatives of mine, dead relatives? Are they people from another world? Are they the souls, interesting word to use, of people who I know, except this is, you know, who are this is where they are, as well as in time and space, like we are in right now. And I didn't know. And I kept moving through this. Um, and as I was moving through this. And this took me, by the way, two days later to remember this moment. The next thing that happened to me, and I didn't know where I was headed, but the next thing that happened to me was there was like an explosion, an instantaneous explosion. And it was a visual one as well. Of everything this particular character, Jeremy Kagan, had ever experienced, seen, read, or heard, all happening simultaneously. Imagining all the hundred thousand hours of television that you've seen, all the movies you've seen, all the experiences of the lifetime you've had, all happening in a nanosecond. And you're experiencing, or in this case, witnessing vision of all of that. Now, a lot of people talk about in near-death experience um, uh, a life review. I would say this was something else. It wasn't quite the life review, but it was a review of everything that had ever gone into this particular consciousness, everything. And when that was released, um, there was, again, a sense of this serenity this piece, this idea that I'm now no longer Jeremy Kagan. I am the witness to everything Jeremy Kagan ever experienced. Mm. That I am, in essence, consciousness looking at a specific experience that this particular individual has had. But I am the awareness of it. And there is no right or wrong or good or bad. There is no judgment whatsoever. There is just awareness itself. 
then I was conscious of moving onward through through the skies, literally through real clouds into space and heading toward the billions of galaxies with an awareness that what I was about to, quote, become, and remember, I now is just conscious, as Jeremy Kagan's gone, but what I was about to become was literally another one of the trillions and gazillions of stars radiating energy, if you will, literally what a star might be. And that's what I was going to be. And I was totally relaxed, if the word is, could even be used, and absolute accepting and in wonderment of this sort of beauty. And at that particular moment, as I headed toward that star field, everything sort of like, if you took everything, the entire world existence, and suddenly compressed it, like you took the, the endless space and time and compressed it, and it compressed all of it, and then it compressed itself into, and I'll use the word, nothingness. Hmm. And I lost, in quotes, even being conscious. Hmm. And it was all perfect. And once I lost being conscious, that's what I lost. Wow. And then, like a movie going backwards, being put in reverse, suddenly that nothingness expanded very, very quickly into the cosmos. And I, or consciousness, this particular one, started to head through the cosmos, past the planets, and it literally was past the, I was passing Jupiter and Mars, I was passing through them, heading toward Earth, which I visually now could see. I don't know what I was except consciousness, and I was heading toward what we would say is California, the coast, and into the mountain area, and then became hovering over and toward the, what I saw on the ground, which was my body and i headed into it and entered my body at which point i was aware that i was back in jeremy and i could breathe i could hardly see now again that same scene but i could begin to hear and there's striated vision like this but i could begin to hear and i started to sort of move a little bit and i realized i was cold now, what they'd done is they'd put some my clothes on top of me, but it was still night and cold. And I started to move, and I began to move like a little toddler, you know, like a little baby where you can, you know, sort of move like this. And I tried to, you know, put my arm through clothing, and I ended up putting my arm through my pants leg. I mean, I was just sort of like, like a baby trying to, you know, get things working right in our time and space. And I finally was able to do that, sort of put this clothes on. There was a fire that was outside that has to do with the, 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 the sweat lodge process in a big pit. And I crawled over to it and I threw my legs across it. There's, there's me, me doing that and felt the heat and felt the warmth and had around me, and that's why these, that's what this image is, cartoon is, is indicating, a just sense of absolute wonder and absolute full love for everything, everyone, 
Love for the cold, love for the night, love for the mountains, love for the ground, love for gravity, love for sight, love for hearing, love for being in a body, love for being able to sort of be aware within this body, and love for, there were a number of the people that were still there from the lodge, I, some had been very concerned, well, love for all of them, absolute, the fullest, and, and I must say, the most I've ever experienced, where it was total love for everything and everyone. Hmm. And um, that was, in fact, the major sort of gift that I try to return to in terms of that attitude, which has been very, very difficult because, you know, soon as I was driving home, which was, uh, you know, hours later, able to drive, um, it's still radiating this. Um, but my sense of judgment of what's good and what's bad started to return. And mm-hmm. I came back to the way we all are mostly, which is that, you know, we, uh, there are moments when we're frustrated and moments when you find someone has really done something wrong. Yeah. And uh, it really annoys us to the point of, you know, anger and rage or whatever, or, you know, you know I return to sort of the, regular struggle that we have as humans, but I had the experience of knowing what absolute love is. That was the major gift of this, if you will, through death experience. Mm -hmm. And then of course I have the knowledge now that we are not limited to the individual that we sort of are invested in. We are so much more than that. You have an amazing story. I don't even know where to start because I have so many questions. But I love how you kept kind of saying over and over about letting go. Do you think that's something that everybody experiences having trouble letting go? Or do you think that was possible a lesson that you needed to learn? I think there's no question. It's a lesson that I still need to learn. Um, I think one of the – listen, life is an incredible gift. Mm-hmm. I mean – you know, um, if you just sort of stop and are conscious of everything that's happening at this very second, those of you who are listening to this or looking at this, the fact that we have ears and eyes and they work, those of you who are thinking about it, the fact that we have minds that work, those of you who are safe in a space, those of you who are, I mean, it's just, life itself is just amazing. Um, and oftentimes I don't appreciate that because I want something that I don't have. And to let go of that want and to accept what, in fact, is, that's a challenge. Um, But that's also the truth. Um, And a lot of our lives are spent rehashing our past. Why didn't this happen? Why didn't that happen? Frustration, emotions that come with that. Or rehearsing our future. Am I going to get this? And we're not present. And our minds, by the way... That's our survival, the mind's survival. And some people, you know, and I've learned this too, sort of want to remind themselves that they're not just their mind and their thoughts and their desires, because oftentimes they possess us. And we become, in a way, slaves of our own mind, our own anxieties, our own fears, our own desires. And the ability to let go of being attached to them, not 
that you shouldn't desire things. You're in a body. The body wants things, and you're you're in mind. The mind wants things. That's just that's that's part of the ride. That's the you know if 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 we've been incarnated as humans, that's what it is. It isn't to run away from them, but it is to recognize that and not be attached to it. So if you don't get what you want, you still can be okay. That means you've let go of the attachment to the thing you wanted. You still wanted it. And maybe you get it. Maybe you don't. You know, as Oscar Wilde said, there was two things that really mess up people's lives, either not getting what they want or getting what they want. In both cases, they can be real problems. The issue of, as you just said, of, of being able to let go. And, you know, it's an interesting, you can train yourself. Um, literally, I know some people who you'll put something in one hand and hold it really tight and then put it in the other. And sometimes people do this with ice cubes in order to really sort of feel it. Oh, wait a minute. I don't know when I'm going to hold this on. I'm holding on too much. And then you put it over there. It's the process of learning to let go. This is just a you know physical exercise of learning to let go. But we're always in that. And of course, here's the thing. When you know you're mortal, meaning that you know you can die and will die, because that's every one of us will, in terms of you know this particular incarnation, um, most of us, including me, don't really know what's going to happen. And oftentimes when you don't know what's going to happen, fear arises. And to be able to let go of the fear, I mean, what's going to happen is going to happen when you die. It just is. And the experience I had said to me, look, what's going to happen is going to be the experience you just had is amazing. You're going to go on an incredible journey of learning and experience, and maybe you'll get something from it, Um, whether you return to your body or whether you end up entering the cosmos and becoming, quote, an energy center somewhere, Mm -hmm. um, or you if you believe in karma and things like that, return to something else in another time, in another space, um, on another planet. Um, whatever may happen to your consciousness, it's going to be a ride. It's going to be a journey. And you need to be able to learn to let go of attachment to whatever it is that you're attached to. So, um, you know, if you're attached to, oh, there has to be a heaven and you don't get the version of heaven you want, being able to let go of that and get the version of whatever you're going to get, that's the gift. You know, um, it's an interesting process. Um, um, In prayer, um, sometimes there are stages to prayer. If the first stage is to actually praise the creative energies, if you believe in God or whatever, but just even the creative energies of existence itself, the fact that there's fire and water and air and land and gravity and the sun and, and, and food and the fact, which we have absolutely nothing to do with in terms of the, the world we're living in, is to praise the creative energies that allow that to happen. Second stage is to be thankful for what you've got whether it's very little or a lot, but it's life itself. Third stage is potentially to ask for what you would like. And the fourth stage in prayer is accept what you get, because maybe that is in fact what you're, if you will, if you use the word soul, that's what you need. 
So this process of letting go of even the thing I want, I'm going to do everything I can to get it. And also I realize part of me is the witness to all of that. And if you can remind yourself that you're always witnessing, you aren't as much attached. And as you just said, this is a long explanation to say, yes, I am continually learning to let go. Mm-hmm. And it's not easy. Think of the people where we're living right now who have relatives and friends who are dying because of this plague, this mm-hmm. worldwide plague. And to let go of the attachments that we have to those people, boy, that's not easy. And I'm not saying we shouldn't grieve for what we care deeply about. In fact, we should. Um, We should feel it fully. But there's an interesting tradition that I come from, which says you grieve for a, a, a being that you've loved who has moved on for a certain amount of time, and then you stop. And the reason you stop is because you're holding on. You're not letting go. Therefore, you're still suffering. But so is the soul of the person, if you believe in this soul, who's moved on. You're not letting them go on. You're pulling them back here. So yes, grieve. My my tradition is 11 months. But then let let that... essence, that beingness, that soul move on. And that's a letting go as well. So yes, it's a, it's a, maybe one of the great, great challenges uh, for all of us. But again, I want to emphasize that doesn't mean don't be active. That just means be aware. I like the way how you described it when you were in the cosmos. Do you think that it's possible you are witnessing like the big bang? Uh, Yes. In fact, I don't think there's a question about it. I wouldn't have said it until you said it, but yes, I I think I literally, as conscious as experienced it. In other words, and I experienced its, its reverse, which is, you know, the idea of the Big Bang is out of nothingness comes everything. Mm-hmm. I experienced the reverse, which was everything reduced itself to nothing. Um, and so in a way, yes. And it's interesting because, you know, different traditions around the world have the idea that um, time in terms of the giant, you know, 15 billion years of the existence of the, of, of, I don't know, the, the, the cosmos, that that's human concept of time. But in fact, there is this potential of, reduction of time and space to nothing and a rebirth of it again um, endlessly. Now, this is too much for my head to hold because it's, it, it, it's sort of this idea that we're in this incredible cosmic dance that, um, that, that doesn't make sense when you want to hold on and when you want logic and the mind to, quote, understand everything. What do you mean? There's many big bangs. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's hard enough to hold on to the idea of out of nothing comes everything. Now you're telling me it all reduces itself back to nothing and then does it again? Maybe. Yeah. It's interesting because as you said that, I started thinking most people describe or explain that when they're in their near-death experience, time doesn't exist anymore. And so 
And we're always measuring, and even science is measuring this big bang in time. You know, like, okay, it's like, I don't know, the universe is 10 billion years old or something. But if you get outside of that, then okay, well, they're coming back and forth, and there's really no time involved with the creation of everything. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's well. Sp- that's very well spoken. Mm. Uh, I, the issue is, you know, as um, um, as my companion, she's uh, teaching me years ago. The form we're in is very, very dense, mm-hmm. um, and um, and and it, because of its its sort of, if you will, the form, mm. um, it's difficult for us to uh, realize that that things like space and time. Um, may in fact on another quote level words become difficult because it doesn't level suggest another space but on another level do not exist at least the way we perceive them and there's no question in the experience that i had i mean i thought it went on for ever um the people who were observing me and um said it was for about 45 minutes before I sort of came out of whatever space I was in, Hmm. Um, you know, right after. So the issue of, and, and in the experience itself, time disappeared as, um, and as well as space. Um, But there was still, as you heard, there were still things that quote were visual Um, um, and, and other people who have near death experiences oftentimes talk about what they hear. Um, um, and other people obviously actually encounter other beings um, in their near-death experiences. I said, I saw other, quote, beingnesses, but I didn't have a, a, you know, a conversation with, with any of those. And I didn't get that co- common thing you hear from other near-death experiences where somehow you're told you are, are supposed to return, and then you return. Because the, the point is that... And I, um, this, this is confirmed by, I'm, you know, almost 99% of the people who have these experiences, they are absolutely some of the most profound and wonderful experiences that people have in their, quote, lives. Mm-hmm. That, that was the best. And while they're having this experience, they didn't want to, quote, come back yeah. because the peace and serenity and uh, um, ease and uh, um, delight. These are all positive words to try to describe something that's almost indescribable are so powerful that why would you want to return? Who wants to come back to this? <laughs> Except when you do come back to it and realize that you have the possibility of experiencing love for it, then you can say, oh, well, then it's totally worth coming back to. But so that it, there is an end of sort of time and space. Um, by the way, when I, I finished, because it's, I want to regard the letting go image for, for a second. When I finished or came back from the experience, obviously, the next days and weeks, <clears throat> I was totally, what happened? What was, what was I supposed to learn? You know, I, I was just, and I started reading and I began to meet people. I met some spiritual leaders in, my, in our communities here and asked them about it. And some people would say, listen, when you go back, would you look for my brother? I mean, oh. it, it, it got sort of bizarre. And I'm, I'm sort of going through this. And then I meet this guy who survived the Nazis. Um, um, and he, he was also, when he was young, also a polio victim. You can imagine trying to you know, crutches surviving the Nazis during World War II. Um, he became a spiritual uh, leader and um, quite a brilliant guy. And 
I, 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 you know, I told my story and all the rest. I said, what am I supposed to get of it? And he said, you know what you should do? You should meditate on a feather. Hmm. Now, first of all, I wasn't good and still not good at meditating even all these years later, even though, um, because my mind is a very busy mind. Um, and it's hard to make it calm. It's hard to let go of thought for me. Meditate on a feather. What, what? A feather? Why a feather? And I was thinking, and ain't, this guy <laughs> looked at me with a smile and said, lighten up. Now, I realize on the level of lighten up, there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's, there's me in my past lighting up. There's also letting go, not being weighed down by thoughts and possessions. Um, and, I, you know, I, I did a lot of research into flying and feathers themselves, which it's an interesting thing about a feather, which I didn't know, but a feather is actually dead in the sense of it, it doesn't have the life energy movement of the bird that has the feather. That part, it's like our fingernails in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 it's, you know, our fingernails will grow and obviously feathers, but it, it, it essentially doesn't have quote life in it. And it's, Air moves through it. It's not solid. It's, it's, you know, when you look at it and investigate it, it's a bunch of interlinking things that there's almost as much space in between the interlinking things as the links themselves. And yet it allows for flight. Now, you know, wouldn't it be great if we all had wings and could fly? Um, and maybe, you know, maybe that's the next space that some of us will go to where we'll have wings and have our brains and have consciousness. But the point was, that's part of letting go. Lighten up. Mm-hmm. Even in the midst of horror, don't let the horror overwhelm you. Know that you're observing it. You know, when you read the stories of martyrs every now and then, mm-hmm. and you think these people are being tortured. But their belief and their awareness is so profound that they know they're not their bodies. And the torture isn't working because they're beyond that, even when that body dies. So letting go? Yeah. You mentioned that they put clothes on you when you were laying down outside. Did anybody ever tell you like, what happened to you physically? Like, hey, I just saw you outside. We took your pulse. You were dead. Or what did they tell you? What was going on with you on yes, Earth? Yes. Um, the people um, right before I sort of lost vision and hearing, someone did take my pulse. I remember, uh, you know, a finger being put over here. Um, and um, I was told that my body was in sort of movement, not spasms, but when people look at it, it would move every now and then. So when you sort of say scientifically what happened, well, I wasn't one of these people who, who, who you know, the baseline in the sense of, um, of you know, uh, if you put an EKG on some people, they uh, declare dead and then they come back and they would be, you know, repeat some experiences, obviously very, very similar to what I'm describing. So, uh, you know, did I have, uh, was I actually literally dead? And, and what I've come to understand, at least if science is to be applied to this experience, and I think this experience is beyond science, honestly, um, was that 
I went through a kind of hyperthermia, which is this, you know, when the, your body is exposed to cold and heat and there's a major, major change, you can die from it um, uh, very, very, in very, very short time. And I think what happened is, in, in terms of time, I think that in maybe for five or ten seconds, maybe for a minute, I have no idea, that I went through a hypothermic experience in which, in fact, if I had been in a hospital, somebody might have said, this guy's dying. Mm. Now, as I said, it was a 45-minute experience looked at from our time and space. Mm. The actuality of it may have been seconds, but those seconds went on for all of that endless time that I, you know, I've told you what what happened. Um, so my brain science saying is okay. Hyperthermia does cause death. It is short lived. That's what happened, um, um, and that was the quote scientific entrance into what was the near death or sometimes I like like to use the word through death experience. Um, yeah. I'm not really clear. So when you say 45 minutes, were you saying that you felt like your experience was 45 minutes or you were laying out in the Oh no, I would I no, I'm saying from the yeah, the from the people who were there mm -hmm. observing this body that was on the ground that before I was able to again move and you know come back to the fire, that was a about 45 minutes in terms of, so that was their experience. And as I said, there may have been in that for, because people did not, you know, I think someone, I don't know when they put the clothes on, but um, the, as I said, I know someone checked to see if I was alive when I was going through the process of losing all my senses. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if anyone ever did that again because mm -hmm. um, I asked and I, uh, no one sort of knew whether that was happening again. I think because of the person who did it at first thought, okay, he's having a sort of profound spiritual experience, you know, he's, and so it's like, and, and, and I think if you study the lives of certain people who've, who've been mystics, there are times when they are totally withdrawn. They're not, they don't move. They're silent. Um, they're still alive, but um, they're going through an, you know deep, deep experience. Um, and I think from the people who are in the sweat lodge, who were sort of more sophisticated in terms of all this, that's what they were saying. This guy's going through a deep spiritual experience. Just let him alone. Um, and I'm, I don't, when they put the clothes over me, I'm sure it was probably pretty soon right. because you know it was cold out there, but <laughs> um, do you think that the catalyst of making you have this experience was the sweat lodge or just the extreme change in temperature? I think of physically, that's a good question. I think physically it was extreme change, uh, change in temperature without a question. Huh. I think on, um, psycho mental space, um, the sweat lodge prepared me, uh, to be able to literally, and go back to your phrase, to let go of everything, mm -hmm. of, of all of me. So, uh, you know, uh, it, it's definitely the combination of the two. There was a, you know, real physical reason that, as I said, and I've talked to medical people about this since, about the, you, we were ha having a hypothermic attack. Um, that was uh, a, a truth, but I don't know if I, even if that attack the journey that I took 
would have been as um, open and um, as big a gift if there hadn't been the sweat lodge process. And by the way, in the sweat lodge process, as you know, we go again to your letting go, as I said, there in this particular Lakota process, there are stages of the sweat lodge. And the third stage is literally a letting go stage. And you go around in a circle. And if you want to speak, um, even though it's in darkness, you can speak to uh, the first stage, what you'd like to bring into your life. The second stage, what you'd like to bring into others' lives who you care about. And the third stage, what you are willing to let go of. And it's always been a challenge, most challenging stage for me in that particular ceremony. Because... I'm like, go away. <laughs> so, so, you know, and, you know, some people have to let, you know, really are, are honest. I, I, I need to let go of my um, wanting power. I need to let go of that. Um, or I, I need to let go of my uh, selfishness. Um, well, that's, you know, I don't know. Hold on to my power, whatever it is. And it's a challenge. So, in a way, the preparation inside the sweat lodge of letting go as one of the stages was, uh, I think, an opening so that when I had a physical, mental experience of the hypothermia, I had also, if you will, the, the psychic, spiritual potential of actually going through um, this experience of death and returning. Once you came back, how did your relationships with people, did they change or, you know, if you were married at the time or, you know, your friends and, and were you, did they all you say, know, Hey, you're a different guy, Jeremy. The most, you know, it's the truth is um, initially when I was back into full Jeremy Kagan hood, mm-hmm. um, I had this a sense of absolute connection and interconnection with everything and everyone. And, and in that sense, this flow of acceptance and I'll use the word love because it had no judgment. It had no, you know, um, literally it had no judgment. It just had this amazing wonderment and um, uh, appreciation. When I got home on a drove home and uh, um, um, and got into bed uh, uh, with my wife, I hardly could sleep. I was just, you know, radiating. And when I went to the set the next morning, because I did show up as the director on this particular show, um, you know, I was just a couple of people came up and said, Jesus, Jeremy, you're like, you're like beaming <laughs> what's, what's going on and i didn't explain what was going on but i just you know i just felt this amazing sort of wonderment and and acceptance and excitement about just being um i over time and you know the days i could see my judgment process return um and so what uh, and one of the reasons why i'm grateful to you to be retelling this story is because I constantly need to remind myself Mm. about how remarkable it is to be alive and open my heart. Um, And so what it did for me is showed me possibility. Mm. Um, It gave me experience and I oftentimes have to be revived. I have to, go back i have to remind myself because i'll in a particular time we're living in i'll get into 
fear. Uh, I'll get into uh, um, um, you know, anger. Um, I'll get into frustration. Uh, I'll get into serious judgment of others. Um, and I need to be reminded, yes, this is, this is a rough ride, and it's a remarkable ride. And, and so that's where I would say the, the, the truth of it. Um, I'm sure on some levels, I don't know. Because at first I didn't, you know, within the first year or so, I was wondering, am, am I, does this just change me at all? Am, mm-hmm. I, am I at all mm-hmm. different? Mm-hmm. I don't really think so. I, I, I think it's a great experience. You know, and it took me a good two or three years to write and illustrate this book that you see over here um, because I wanted to keep reliving it and I wanted to share it. The weird part of this is my mind says, okay, you've experienced death. Death was, in essence, a remarkable experience, a incredible you know, ride, the E-ride at Disney, you know, quadrupled. And there were feelings, if that's the right word to use, that were so wonderful and so serene. Um, uh, when this body dies the next time or mine dies, is that what's going to happen? I don't know. You know, I, I, I don't think so. I think it'll be something else. Um, so there's still the fear of the unknown, mm-hmm. but there's also a recognition that sometimes when you're in the unknown and that fear first comes, and you, you probably know this about fear, um, it, in terms of our, 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 our sort of mental process, it, it, it stimulates something that in terms of, uh, how our body and, and minds respond that actually is very short lived. It's like about six or seven seconds in terms of the adrenaline shifts and other chemical stuff that happens when fear hits you. Mm. But then it's over. But what happens is your mind doesn't, and this is your word, let go. Mm. Your mind, the fear comes and your mind holds on to that fear and then reinstitutes it. And if you think about, for example, what's happening in our time now in terms specifically of media and specifically of the way information is being given to us, much of it is about stimulating the same biochemical reaction of fear because then we're riveted to where that source of fear is, that that social media thing that we now have to you know, be on all the time because it's feeding that fear and it's our minds feed back. And that's a loop that we get caught into and we can't step back from it. Mm-hmm. That's why a lot of people say, you know, turn off the social media, mm-hmm. turn off the TV. doesn't mean don't get informed. I mean, truth is truth. Facts are facts. I mean, there is science, <laughs> real science, and there is real truth. And, you know, I just learned that the Nazis, I didn't know this, by the way, I just learned this today. Um, they were one of the first people um, when the Nazis took over Germany and obviously caused World War II and the death of, you know, you know 30 million people besides, uh, you know, in addition to 6 million Jews killed. When they were taking over, they had the same phrase in German. The translates as fake news. Mm-hmm. Same phrase. Mm-hmm. So it's to get you so anxious and, 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 and you pay attention to only that and you feed it. And that's a, that's a real issue that we, 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 we kind of get caught into and to be able to step back from it. 
um, is, is really important. And as I said, I, I don't know when I die again, mm-hmm. whether I'll return again mm-hmm. or where, what that experience will be. Mm-hmm. But I do know that this experience taught me that death is not to be feared. Death is going to happen, mm-hmm. but it's not to be feared, which means that maybe you'll live your life in a more free, less anxious way. Because in the end, it's that fear of death that underlies a lot of our anxieties. And we don't even realize it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's a part of us that knows this is going to stop and we don't want it to. And so we're going to do anything to hold on. Yeah. I agree with you that you and people like you have been given a gift. I've never had a near-death experience, but I've discussed with my wife before. It's like, it's an interesting thing to be a human because you have to understand or you realize that at some point it's all over. Like animals probably don't have this realization. Your dog doesn't realize at some point there's an ending to this, or at least to this life. So is it almost like a curse that you're born with, that you know that there's an end? Yeah, so it's that's a fascinating question. It's a deep one. Yeah. You know, there's a story about, um, quote, angels, which is not something that I, you know, that people have had experiences with. I have not. I've, I've actually heard voices, but that was, um, uh, there was something else. That was um, psychotropic experiences, which is a whole other thing. Right. But it is obviously letting go. But there was a question of, should human beings be created in the first place? Because mm-hmm. if they are, they're going to do a lot of damage because they're going to have incredible creative ability and the capacity to choose. That means they can choose the wrong thing. They can choose negativity. They can choose harm. They can choose uh, uh, racism. They can choose lots of, you know, they can choose, can choose hatred. They can do that. Uh, and all of that comes from horrid the histories of what humans do to each other and, and, and now are doing to the planet itself. Mm-hmm. So should humans even be created? And uh, the, the other angels argued, yes, they will do all this negative stuff, but they also do incredible positive stuff. They will also create beauty. They will also have compassion. They will also have the capacity the capacity to truly unite and recognize their interconnectedness. They can do that. And and the mind to be able to do that. Um, And then that becomes the great question. Do, what do we choose? So um, I, I, I think we, it is um, clearly a challenge to be human and I guess the real part of it is to be human because mm. that means you are at least in extending yourself to recognize that others are you. When you look at another, you actually see yourself. Now, that's really difficult for a lot of us. Mm. Um, but if we can realize we can do that, which we can then the possibilities of what we can do are astounding. And in and, 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 and many cases, we have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've, as, as a group, as a, 
as a species. You know, I was just thinking that when you said that, I was thinking about elephants because um, elephants, um, uh, at least from our perception, our perception, um, um, mourn the um, death of, of a fellow creature. Hmm. And as a herd, they will come to where uh, another elephant has died maybe years before, and you'll see them do a kind of ritual. So there's an awareness level of other species that oftentimes we don't appreciate. So, um, you know, um, and some people who are very close to the four-leggeds will tell you these, they, they know what's going on. They even know how to die. Um and and let go um and there's so much to be learned from them um biomimicry you may know this uh, um is a uh, uh, science that says if you study nature and other creatures um both plants and animals they oftentimes can teach us us how to make our lives better hmm. um, example the design of lots and lots of uh, moving vehicles is copied from the designs of certain animals and birds. Um, even the wings uh, of certain airplanes now um, uh, have the same kind of, um, if you will, bumps on them that humpback whales have because it m- makes for much smoother motion through something. So we're literally learning from the animal. Um, so I have a feeling we need to sort of understand the the, the the relationships yeah. uh, and if we do then we won't feel so much the curse and the isolation you know there's a wonderful moment of some of you may have seen the movie contact and, and, and it is you know going to outer space and and and, and contacting other um, beings and other other um intelligences and there's a moment when one of these beings who's an uh, is talking to our heroine and he says you know you're we see you this is other you know intelligences from other spaces other and i just want to say spaces because i want to use the word planet because that's too limited mm-hmm. um because there's sort of you know there's an idea of what's called multiverses which is we live in this universe but it's not like my experience it's not limited to our time and space conceptions there are other levels that we can experience um, that, but don't have the logic that our minds will have. And so this being is saying to our, our heroine, he said, you're a remarkable species. Um, this is Carl Sagan's writing on one way. You're so creative and, and you have such possibilities and you have such terrors. Mm-hmm. And that's the challenge for us mm-hmm. to recognize one of the terrors is our own death, that it's, it's not so bad. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is to recognize that since we can, can choose and oftentimes choose poorly, that we can rectify that. We can make a new choice because that's the gift of being a human. I know you didn't say this, but maybe you've, noticed it and questioned it and maybe not but since you came back is it possible that you had any abilities like intuition or seeing events happen before they unfold or anything like that uh 
I would not say I'm really aware of that. I know that many people who have near-death experiences have profound changes in their lives, literally do change their lives and, and do something different, act in a different way. Um, that's not what happened for me. Except the ability to recognize openings, like, you know, a, I'll use a metaphor, a door opens and my willingness to step through the door rather than the fear of, I don't know what's on the other side, so I'm not going to go there. Mm. That definitely um, has been a truth over my life since this. So on a way that I'm not as aware of that I, that other people are aware of when they have these experiences, I would say that that's the, the, realization there's a possibility here and the willingness to step into it, even though it's unknown, that's definitely something that's been true for me over the last, you know, two decades. Um, so I would say that, you know, in a way that's subtle, yes. I, I mean, I've always been a creative person, meaning that I, that I, that's what I do. Um, and I think on some levels, I've always been into the idea of sharing and, 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 and helping, which is what, you know, teaching can be about. So that, and I would say that in a way there, these things have been, um, uh, it's like a flame. They're, they're a little hotter since. And so my creativity in many ways, I would say, um, expanded um so yes and i wouldn't immediately say and then that's a tribute to the fact that you had a near-death experience and now you're I, no you know, so i'm not like now i can play the violin where i couldn't play it before right. but i do play the clarinet and still play it and play in a band um and i draw all the time and i've been painting and drawing and obviously making movies um so there's there's Something happened, but I wouldn't be able to say, like some people have been able to say, this, quote, changed me forever. Um, I would say it's much subtler than that. Fair enough. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. All right. We've seen your book there, the entire podcast. If someone wants to get it, how do they get it? Is it on Amazon? Just really easy. You just, if you literally type in on your you know, computer, my death, a personal guidebook, and put my name on it, Jeremy Kagan, or just my death, a personal guidebook. It'll come up. It comes up right away. And um, it's available th uh, through Amazon um, and the publishing house is Balboa. And by the way, I wasn't kidding. It costs all of $3. Oh, yeah. That's, that's a great price. <laughs> I, you know, I, I know I should have priced it at $50 because <laughs> it was definitely a rich experience, but I want to share it. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, and I'm lucky enough because of these other things that I've done and do in my life that I don't have to rely on the money that might come from that. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, 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 I but, but yes, it's very easy. If you just type in my death, a personal guidebook, Jeremy Kagan will come right up and you'll see where you can get it. Um, and it's on, I think it's on Kindle as we, and I know it's on Kindle as well as, um, you know, um, in fact, I'm sorry, it, that is the way you get it because it's an e-textbook, e-textbook. It's an e-book. And the reason it's an e-book is because there are hundreds of illustrations. It's interesting because when I first, I wrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it because I wanted to be able to tell it so that I could help other people 
with our own fears of, of our own mortality. That's why I wrote it um, to help you know that the possibility is this can be a profoundly um, expansive experience um, and, a pos- and a positive one. Um, so um, then I realized that I, I wasn't communicating the way I communicate and I started to illustrate it. Um, and, um, when I did these colors illustration, you know, the style of them is like what you see over here with when I, when my, my beard was dark. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, uh, then putting that together made it, uh, um, um, something I think that really isn't enjoyable and, um, has lots of levels to it. And the only way to really make that accessible so that people could afford it was to do it as an ebook and you know, cause these are color illustrations. And if it were printed, then it would have had to have been, you know, expensive and, that's not, you know, I want to share the story. I want to share the possibilities. And uh, if, if, if I can lessen the fear even a little bit for anybody of what we're all going to experience, then it's been a good thing to put out there. You know, there's a line that says one who dies before they die, when they die, they don't die. I like that. Do you have any other projects that you're working on right now that you would like us to know about? Well, I would like, particularly because of the time we're living in, I'd like you to be aware and I'd like you to see uh, uh, the movie that I finished, I guess it's almost now two years, um, called Shot. That's H-O-T, Shot. Mm-hmm. Um, why I would like you to see it is because... It's a movie um, it's, 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 uh, about um, what happens. Noah Wiley, uh, the, uh, many of you I'm sure know him, um, is the star. It's an amazing performance. But it, it's a movie in real time of what happens if, if any of us got shot. And uh, in, in this case, uh, not intentionally. It was an, uh, being the wrong place at the wrong time, but it happened. And I wanted us to experience this because movies uh, and I've done this in lots of my movies and television shows shot lots of people, um, but they are not conscious of what uh, making us conscious of what it really means. And one of the worst parts of it is not people who get shot and killed, but oftentimes people get shot and then the rest of their lives, they're suffering from what that has done to them physically as well as psychologically and i wanted us to experience it because you know we are a gun obsessed culture we have been you know if you compare the number of guns that we have versus the number of guns there anywhere else in the world you can compare the number of gun deaths that we have every year we're talking about over a hundred thousand compared to you know you take 20 other countries around the world and stuff them together and we still will triple the amount of deaths by guns um you know suicide i mean by guns is is horrific um and we need to be more conscious mm-hmm. so we can make choices mm-hmm. that are not about killing each other and so if i i would rather say right now um you know Spend your three bucks and go on Amazon and 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 watch Shot, um, mm-hmm. because I think it'll stimulate the conversations that we need to have about guns and gun violence, particularly in the time we're living in right this minute. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to have that those conversations very very seriously and recognize who we are as a culture and a society, 
and and our possibility of changing. So that's what I recommend. Um, you you take a look at in researching you and letting everybody know. And my audience knows that besides doing a lot of NDE podcasts, I also do quite a few UFO and alien abductions ones. And um, Jeremy has a movie about the Roswell incident. And I think it stars uh, Dwight Yoakam and maybe Martin Sheen. And there's something right. that I want to go back and Kyle watch. Mc, Kyle, Kyle McLaughlin, Kyle McLaughlin plays the uh, mm-hmm. lead in. Um, and Jesse Marcel, the famous maybe justice, if you know the UFO stories. Mm-hmm. This was the seminal uh, American UFO story that happened in Roswell in 1947, mm-hmm. uh, where, where for one day the uh, government uh, admitted that there was contact from um, another, in this case, because we were looking at as planets and stuff mm-hmm. from another quote, you know, planet. As I'm saying, you have to understand, and it's a whole other conversation about what the UFO contact really is um, or can be, and it has been. But um, uh, it, it's it's quite a it's quite a strong movie, um, mm-hmm. and and re- and really insightful. I, I you know I've obviously now seen all the UFO movies and both the documentaries and the endless documentaries, and the, the 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 films that have been made. This is a really very very powerful one that talks about what the Roswell incident was and is, um, and it does it through um, kind of going through different times. And the last fifteen minutes of the movie. Um, it takes you through all the versions from it was nothing but a weather balloon to there were actually living beings that mm. survived this quote crash. And you see all these different versions. It's, it's quite, it's quite powerful. Mm. Another movie, by the way, that I would recommend for those of you who are movie make uh, uh, movie watchers is a movie that you also can see on Amazon or it's free on Vimeo. And it's a movie called conspiracy, the trial of the Chicago eight. You may know there's a new movie out. Um, it's got a lot of attention called The uh, Trial of the Chicago 7. Um, my movie is um, uh, it is deeper into the truth of this particular um, horrendous uh, trial in American history back in 1969. Because in my movie, which I made in the, the late 80s, um, all of the real uh, um, defendants, uh, Abby Hoffman, Tom Hayden, etc., Randy Davis, and all of the lawyers um, were alive, and they're all in the movie. So they're mm-hmm. actors playing them, but there's also the real people commenting as the movie plays dramatically, because it's a kind of a courtroom drama, mm-hmm. um, on the actors playing them. Oh, wow. So here's an actor playing, you know, Carl Lumley is playing Bobby Seale, who was mm-hmm. bound and gagged, and much more intense than in the new movie and all based on the transcripts and the journalists who were there at the trial. Um, in my movie, you not only see the horror of this particular moment, um, but you, Bobby Zeal suddenly appears like I'm appearing over my head and he starts to talk about what happened to him as the actor is playing what happened to him. It's quite an amazing movie. So for those of you who are movie buffs and maybe have seen the uh, trial of the Chicago seven, I highly recommend you go online. And as I said, it's free on Vimeo or you can find it on Amazon um, called conspiracy, the trial of the Chicago eight, because there were eight of them, not seven. Oh, that's great. Well, Jeremy, unfortunately I only have so much time. I hope I can get you back so we can talk about your Roswell movie and about aliens. 
But um, I wish you massive success in everything you're doing. And again, I just want to say thank Thanks you. Thanks for so watching much the for Jeff Mara podcast. It has been my I really real appreciate pleasure it. to share this. Another with way you. to show support I, I, is through I, I YouTube membership. Safe and if you do, there are loyalty and badges and other perks depending are, on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support. You too, man. Thank you for allowing me to do this. Mm -hmm. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye.